All right, folks. Welcome back to the Colorado Switchblade. I'm your host, as always, Jason Van Tatenhove. It is another cloudy, foggy, rainy day, and I love it. I do love rainy days. I get a lot of writing done on rainy days. It just kind of stirs up the creative juices, you know? Got like a chapter and a half written on my book this morning. I'm switching up my uh, my daily work routine. I used to do podcasts first and then work on the my book writing that I got to do every day, but... I found that at times I just wasn't so inspired to to work on my book quite so much after I had already created a podcast. Because I'm always excited to make a podcast. You know, I get to make some music, get to talk about some things happening in the real world. Whereas, you know, writing the book, I'm just trying to remember things that happened like, I don't know, like seven years ago. And, you know, it's part of my life that I mostly want to forget. And... uh it's a lot easier for me to just get the book writing done first and then get to the podcast because I always know I'm going to put a hundred, 101% in that podcast. So, all right. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit more about homelessness. Um, and then we're going to, we're going to jump into a task force here in Estes Park that is trying to come up with some concepts and ideas to to actually have some meaningful impact on the housing crisis here in Estes Park, Colorado. So uh, first interview is going to be with Kathy Alderman, who is with the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. And the conversation kind of starts off with um, a discussion on higher rates of sexual assault amongst women experiencing homelessness in Colorado. And then we just kind of evolves into a talk about the state of homelessness altogether in the state of Colorado. And uh, for the local hook here in Estes, we, we talk a little bit about, you know, when, when we have large employers here in town who promise people the world, often marketing to more vulnerable populations, and then... They get out here, you know, they fly them out here and they they have all these expectations. And then it's never quite what it seems with that original offer. And what happens, you know, how those what happens to those people when they no longer have a job here and they, they don't have housing because it was part of the gig. And then they've got to filter down to the homeless populations in the front range of Colorado. So we're going to be talking about that. And then we're going to be talking with attorney... Bill Brown about the um, the task force on coming up with some solutions for workforce housing here in Estes Park. So it's going to be two interviews and, um, you know, we're just going to jump right into it. So first off, I want to thank my sponsors, um, Real Mountain Theater and the Historic Park Theater. Went and caught a comedy show there on, uh, was it Friday? I think it was Friday. And uh, yeah, they're doing all kinds of things over the park theater. Comedy shows, music shows. A couple times a year, they do uh, the Rocky Mount Horror Picture Show, um, along with their usual movies and, you know, operas and things like that. So 
Um, yeah, go ahead and check out those theaters next time you're in town looking for something to do. So two movie theaters here in town. Before we get into the interviews, did you guys see the new season of Stranger Things season four? Oh my God. So good. I binged it all this weekend. All of it, it was so well written. And I got to tell you, I'm not going to do any spoilers, but yet anyway, not today. I'm not going to spoil anything today. What I will say is one of the episodes, like the big monster reveal episode, uh, was actually directed, I believe, by the actor who played Freddy Krueger in the uh, old 80s horror flicks. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't checked out um, Stranger Things season four, like immediately after this podcast, just go watch it. It's You're, you're going to wind up binging the whole thing in like a day or two. I think it took me a 24-hour period, but yeah, it's just so well written, so well executed. It is the best season, in my opinion, by far, of the whole Stranger Things uh, series. So if you haven't checked it out, go check it out. So good. So good. All right. Well, let's just jump into this first interview with... uh, Kathy over at the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless and have a discussion a little bit about the state of homelessness in the state of Colorado and and just uh, what happens when a woman who is experiencing homelessness experiences a sexual assault. So, you know, this kind of ties into the podcast I did, I don't know, last month, earlier this month. Um talking about a friend of mine who was experiencing homelessness, who was a victim of sexual assault and rape. And um, according to her, the Denver police and the, uh, the uh, sheriff's office over there wouldn't take her rape report. So we're just going to talk about some of the issues surrounding that, but we're just going to jump into it. So here we go. If you could just introduce yourself for my listeners, that would be great. Sure. My name is Kathy Alderman, and I am the Chief Communications and Public Policy Officer for the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. I've been in this role for about six and a half years, and I oversee kind of our public education, media relations, lobbying activities. Um, and we also uh, do a lot of educating through social media and through the release of um, one pagers. We actually have a one pager that's almost um, completely updated on women and homelessness. Um, and then we hold education events. And we did recently um, hold an event on um, housing and homelessness from among women. All right. So let's talk a little bit about. Um, well, it, it, it's not an easy subject to talk about. I, I mean, that's true of all of homelessness and people expo- uh, experiencing homelessness. But let's let's talk about specifically because we originally made contact because I was working on a story about a friend of mine who is experiencing homelessness and um, was sexually assaulted. So I just wanted to, and in my research, I found that there, homeless women actually experience a much higher percentage of, of sexual assault than homed women. Can we just talk about that subject a little bit here in Colorado? Sure. Well, you're right. It is a difficult subject, but it's a very real subject. Um, Women experiencing homelessness often report that the very reason that they entered the cycle of homelessness is because of domestic abuse or sexual assault um, within their home or community. Um, It can be extraordinarily traumatizing. The resources to 
help women through that can be hard to find when you're housed and even harder to find when you're unhoused. We also know that women experiencing homelessness um, suffer from sexual assault and abuse on the streets at much higher rates than housed individuals. About 33% of the um, women that you know, tell us that they're experiencing homelessness have been victims of sexual assault um, or abuse on the streets. And so we know, again, those resources to really help women through these really traumatic um, events in their lives can be hard to find. And it's really difficult uh, to, to go and tell your story to a hospital or a police officer because there's so, um, there's so much shame and stigma that comes with having an experience of homelessness. And then there's so much stigma and shame that comes with um, being the victim of sexual assault or abuse. Um, and those things tied up oftentimes mean that women won't seek out the help they need, especially if they're unhoused. So what resources are available for, for women in homelessness if they experience a sexual assault? You know, they're... Um, they can they they're not consistent right so um it's not like what might be available in denver is going to be the same thing that's going to be available in a, in a more rural or rural resort area of the state um you know but we certainly encourage all women who are victims to seek out um the police and to report the sexual assault um whether or not they know who the assailant is um we, you know, try to get women into um, safe shelter spaces where they can't be found by a potential abuser. Um, some cities have safe houses, some don't. And obviously the locations of those are, are not public um, because that would um, potentially subject the, the, the victim to further abuse or stalking by their, um, by their abuser. You know, when we're out um, doing outreach on the streets, especially in, in Denver metro area, we try to help women move into other sheltered environments, um, recognizing the, the high risk that comes with being unhoused and, and sleeping outside. Um, but of course, you know, shelter is not for everyone. And so, you know, I, we think it's our job just to make sure that, um, that the women, you know, who consider themselves to be clients of ours or associated with us, know they can come to us um, for resources, help, and shelter um, if something um, tragic does happen on the streets. All right. Well, let, let's, I, I've also been talking quite a bit about kind of the rise of, of homelessness, and it seems like it's something that I, I know even up in here in Essex, we have a high housing crisis. Um, you know, it's been this perfect storm of of economic factors, of the pandemic, of, of everything kind of hitting at once. And uh, how is that translated to, to numbers of people experiencing homelessness, e either across Colorado or if you're if most of your data is out of Denver, then talk to us about Denver. Sure. Well, I don't think we've seen the full impact um, of, of what COVID has contributed to the crisis of homelessness in the state of Colorado, though we're certainly starting to see um, some of those impacts. You know, the HUD, the um, Department of Housing and Urban Development, the federal agency that administers homelessness response and prevention funds to states, requires that you do what is referred to as a point in time count every year. And so the last point in time count in Colorado um, identified about 10,000 individuals experiencing homelessness throughout the state. That was one night in January. Uh, during a, a full school year of that same time period, our Department of um, Education identified 26,000 students who were experiencing homelessness. And obviously those students are connected to 
um, uh, family members, uh, siblings, maybe, you know, grandparents, et cetera, or somebody else who's likely to be unhoused. That's a huge number. Yes. And then our Medicaid agency, so through the Department of Healthcare Policy and Finance, um, they looked to see who was using Medicaid for insurance purposes and, and identified as being homeless or um, housing and stable, not living in a, in a stable housing environment. So, for instance, being doubled up um, in a house with a household. And that number was about 53,000 individuals. So in Colorado, we know there's likely between 10 and about 55,000 individuals experiencing homelessness um, within a within a t- any given day. Um, and that number's increasing, right? As, as the pandemic hit and people lost their jobs or weren't able to pay rent, maybe not uh, for their mortgage, just the, the trauma that has occurred around um, the COVID crisis and the mental health crisis has caused some people to lose their homes. And this is especially impactful on women because we know that so many women had to stay home during the pandemic for childcare or homeschooling purposes and are having a tougher time reentering the, uh, the, the job market or may not ever be able to reenter until their child, uh, you know, finishes school. Uh, and so we know that the likelihood that more, unfortunately, more women um, are going to, you know, lose their housing or enter that cycle of homelessness potentially with children um, is very high. Wow. I mean, it's hard to wrap your 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 brain around those numbers. Um, you know, the, the the community I come from has six thousand people in total in the in the community. So, and and so let's let's talk about what happens when you have that that large of a number in say an urban area. I know here in Estes we have literally other than some vouchers that like the police department can give for a night or two. That's really it, and that that's basically nothing as far as resources go. But with that many numbers here in our communities in Colorado, how does that work with, you know, uh, we keep hearing every every week, it seems in the news, there's another homeless camp that's been, you know, pushed off by the police. Sometimes those interactions become violent. Um, it just seems like, I mean, I, I'm going to let you talk. How, how has that affected things, um, you know, with this this ever increasing population happening of of community members that, you know, are friends and family that that not only don't have a home to live in, but they're being pushed around and they're told where they can't be. It's almost like it's illegal to to be poor. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, in many areas, it is illegal to um, be poor and unhoused. And I don't think that the um, policymakers or the decision makers would appreciate that characterization, but it is absolutely true. And it can perpetuate the cycle of homelessness um, when someone is constantly being moved around, re-traumatized and subject to the criminal justice system because they're trespassing or they violated a camping ban. Um, All of those things pile up and make it much more difficult to get into safe housing. But I do want to say that um, resolving homelessness, even at the scale that we see in Colorado, is not insurmountable. Um, It is possible. We know what the solution is. It is affordable, accessible, available housing with support services to help people get into housing and stay housed. We also know that um, homelessness prevention is a critical component of that. So for the thousands of Colorado households who are spending more than 50, sometimes um, 60% of their income on housing costs, we need a safety net that can prevent them from entering the cycle of homelessness when they uh, when they find themselves in a position of not being able to pay rent for a, a month or two, or when they find them 
themselves in the position of making this the decision between paying rent or um, for childcare services. So we need a stronger safety net to prevent people from entering the cycle to begin with, um, as well as focusing on homelessness resolution. I think there are some encouraging um, things happening right now. For instance, the state of Colorado has not invested in homelessness uh, prevention and resolution in, in the, last, the at least the six and a half years that I've been here. It's, all, it's only been federal dollars and obviously the federal money has not kept up with the pace of the crisis. And so it's why we are where we are today. But we do see that there are more investments coming from American Rescue Plan Act funds or ARPA funds. Um, targeted specifically to homelessness. So for instance, there was a bill passed this um, legislative session, House Bill uh, 1377, that provides for $100 million in grants to local governments and nonprofit organizations to address specific local homelessness needs in the community. And that can include things like street outreach programs, which is a way to build relationships with people experiencing homelessness so that they, they will come inside to shelter or they may become available for a housing um, option. There's also, those grants could also be used to build shelters and specifically shelters for um, populations who are having a difficult time accessing them. So for instance, if there's not a women um, shelter in your community and that's becoming a high need, then the community could focus on maybe providing some of that space. And then those funds can also be used for transitional housing options. So getting somebody inside into housing, helping them stabilize, accessing um, employment services that they need to, kind of getting back on their feet um, so they can move to a long-term housing option, which is another, um, another thing that these funds can be used for, which is often referred to as permanent supportive housing or just supportive housing. And, and what that means is that you get somebody into housing and you help them stay get stabilized in that housing and stay stabilized in that housing. And oftentimes those support services can taper off, um, but it, they're really critical up front so that someone can figure out, you know, where their transportation options are, where their grocery store is, you know, what kind of job opportunities might be available in their community, what kind of insurance are they eligible for, what kind of benefits might they be eligible for. So those services are really critical in helping people get housed. So I think we have an opportunity in Colorado to start seeing um, effective homelessness resolution interventions take place, but we uh, we're pretty far behind the eight ball on it. Yeah, I, it, 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 I'm still wrapping my head around things. So let me ask you this: we we have a, a, a full blown housing crisis happening up here in Estes Park, which is a resort mountain town, um, and and you know we have a lot of of larger employers that will bring in um employees and and they oftentimes I, I refer to them as the the working homeless because they're living out of their cars in the summertime they're living out of tents and such um but oftentimes these jobs um are not all that sustainable just with wages and and such and and the the cost of living up here and there is absolutely no available housing whatsoever up here so you know we kind of bring these people into our community and if they're lucky they can find a place to live but that's very few and far between do you find that mountain resort communities, when, when people experience homelessness in those communities and there's no resources here for them, do they just kind of funnel down to the urban Denver area? Um, does, it, does it compound the problem that's, that's down there already? You know, I think it works um, in multiple ways. I think that a, a lot of people and throughout Colorado, but certainly in the rural resort areas, are not able to afford to live where they work. Um, and so we do see people either driving, uh, you know, for an hour and a half, two hours each way to work because their affordable housing is, an, is only available in other 
living in their cars or living in kind of unsafe environments where there might be, you know, three people living in a one bedroom apartment, for instance. Um, I, I don't think that a lot of people from rural resort towns are moving down to Denver for homelessness services um, because I think that, that they're, they're finding um, connections, you know, where they're living and where they are working. It's just that it's not stable um, and, and it's not appropriate, right? It's, it's, it's not just. Um, right. I think, you know, in Denver, we're seeing uh, a homelessness increase uh, for a number of reasons, including that housing has become completely out of reach for so many individuals. And what available kind of affordable housing exists is, is starting to convert to be unavailable. And so, you know, to your point, yes, wages have not kept up with the cost of housing. Um, and housing costs in Colorado are, are wildly inflated right now. Um, and that's both because people are, are moving here or moved here, you know, during the pandemic because the economy was still strong in Colorado. Um, but it's also because of, because a lot of people, despite their very best efforts to stay employed or sometimes work two jobs, just they can't get the kind of income increases that rent that mirror what we're seeing in increases in rents. Um, and so I think we need to really think about um, how, you know, how do we help incentivize and manage the rental market so that people can stay in their um, units or get into units that current that today are unaffordable to most people in the state. Um, you know, as I mentioned, with the homelessness funding coming from ARPA funds uh, through the state legislature, there's also about $400 million being invested in housing. Um, and so we could start to see some real shifts over the next couple of years in housing. I think, you know, if we spend the money correctly and if we really think about where those greatest needs are, and that's obviously for people that are, you know, middle income, low income, and then you know, poverty stricken. Um, those are, that's really where the, if, if we invest housing resources there, then those people will no longer be in crisis and will no longer be spending the money and all the emergency um, systems that are, that are being used to, you know, manage them in an unstable housing situation or in homelessness. So people use, that are experiencing homelessness use emergency services at much higher rates because they can't go to regular doctor's appointments. And so they are oftentimes going to the emergency room. Shelter is much more expensive than housing on a you know night to night basis. Um, and then the, the pressure on the criminal justice system that um, a, a crisis of homelessness creates is, um, you know, it's, it's as bad as what we hear about in terms of, you know, prisons and jails being used as mental health institutions. That's not the way to solve someone's housing status to put them in jail. And so we really should think about spending money especially public resources, much more effectively on housing and services rather than on these expensive emergency systems. Gotcha. So my, my last question is actually a two-parter. Um, first off, for, for those people that may experience homelessness here pretty soon, and I, I can tell you every week we're seeing it in our, our local you know, Facebook pages and whatnot, where people are just desperately, desperately looking for a place to live. So if they're newly homeless, what, uh, what, what suggestions would you have for reaching out and finding resources that they may qualify for or may be available to them? And then the yeah. second part of that is, the, the, the follow-up question will be, for listeners that, that want to help and, and help be part of the solution, how would you suggest that they move forward in doing that? 
So yeah, both great questions. So the first one, I would say, if you are in a community where there are no homelessness servers, so you don't have a shelter, you don't have, um, you know, a, a church that opens its doors regularly for people to sleep in, that you should contact your Department of Human Services um, to see if they can help you with some of your immediate needs, like uh, food access and maybe trying to get you on the path um, for some housing assistance. Uh, there's also you know, and most communities have a local um, housing authority that, as you mentioned earlier, may only have a few housing vouchers to help people get into housing, um, but you should make sure you're on their list um, for those resources, especially as we start to see more resources becoming available over the next year or so, which is absolutely not satisfying for somebody who is experiencing homelessness or entering the cycle today. Um, so I know that in many instances, this is not a, a great answer. If you do have a homeless service provider in your community, even if it's just a small shelter, you should start there. Even if you're not um, able to access the shelter space for, what, for whatever reason, they can get you access to other resources that might help you, um, you know, manage this, uh, this particular experience of homelessness. And maybe they can connect you with resources in another community or may, they may know of um, something else that could be available for you. Um, and again, Absolutely not a satisfying answer for somebody who, um, you know, is faced is faced with that, you know, that difficult situation. In terms of what people can do, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think the first thing is we really have to change the way we think and react to homelessness. We can't look at it as a personal failure of every individual because we are living in extraordinary times where housing has never been so out of reach for people as it is today. Um, and we also know that the impacts of, of the pandemic have, have been you know, really detrimental to people's housing stability. So many people know people who lost jobs during the pandemic. Um, the idea of people living paycheck to paycheck became the experience of almost everyone. Um, so everybody knows somebody who is simply one, um, one bill, one car accident, one uh, medical bill away from potentially losing their housing. So I think we need to, you know, have a little bit more compassion for what's really happening rather than just judging people who, um, who may have fallen into the cycle of homelessness. I'll also, I you know, always encourage people to support homeless service providers, um, whether it's locally or a statewide organization like the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. Um, those are the providers that are on the ground working with individuals, working with families. They know how to navigate the systems and they know how to get people housed. Uh, and so I think encouraging, you know, support for those organizations and finding out, sometimes it's not just giving them money, finding out if they need volunteers or if they're taking donations of clothing or other items. And the third thing I would say is people really need to be talking to elected officials at all levels of government about addressing um, homelessness and the housing crisis in Colorado. We need our elected officials to know that it's a big issue for everyone and that we want to see resolution and we want to see you know, solutions and not just talk and not just grandstanding, but that we want to use public dollars to resolve housing instability and homelessness, and we want to do it immediately. Um, and so I always encourage people to talk to, you know, city council members, county commissioners, state legislators, um, and even up to the governor's office and our congressional delegation. They need to be hearing from folks regularly that we all, that we as a state believe that we need to resolve these issues. All right. Well, Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. I'm sure you're just slammed with everything going on uh, to, to speak with me and my listeners. Thank you so much, Kathy. Sure. Thanks for having me and be happy to come back anytime. All right. Well, we'll take you up on that. Okay. Take care. 
All right, folks. Well, that was Kathy Alderman of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. And some real things we can do right now to try to help. You know, whether that's just reaching out to political offices and saying, hey, we need to focus on this. Um, we can all do a little bit. Do our part. All right, next up. So this this is uh, somewhat related. It, is, it, it has to do with the housing crisis happening up here in Estes Park and around Colorado, really. It's not just here, but it, it's it's especially hard here. And um, had a chance to talk with Bill Brown, who is uh, an attorney at law. He is Patty Brown's husband, who I spoke with about the Kahuna, the big Kahuna Memorial last week. And uh, man, I think I'm just going to have like every one of their family members, like their daughters doing um, documentary filmmaking in just awesome ways. Um, I might, I'm, I'm trying to get an interview with her this summer when she's out. And then also their son is like some attorney. I think out on the West Coast, who's doing like stuff for creatives and journalists and whatnot. So I thought that'd be a great interview too. So uh, yeah, eventually we're going to just talk to all the Browns, I think. Anyway, um, so we're talking about this new task force that the city of Estes Park is is doing along with Visit Estes Park and stakeholders in the community. And I'm just going to let him explain it because he's an attorney and part of the task force. So let's just jump into that interview next. And then that's going to be the podcast for today. I am an attorney who uh, retired from a 45-year law practice in Iowa to move out here about a year and a half ago. And uh, my family has deep roots in the valley because my father in the 60s bought 28 acres of land out here and developed it mm -hmm. as uh, Rangeview Estates. And then turns out he ended up retiring here and in an early 80s uh, and he was a sewer commissioner I know for the Upper Thompson uh, Sanitation District. Anyway, so all the kids, all of our kids went to Chile camp out here too. So, you know, we're connected and then there was about a 20 year absence because my parents moved back to Iowa because of health problems in 2000. So from 2000 to 2020, we're pretty disconnected, but uh, there are people around here that remember my parents still, so it's kind of cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I'm kind of following along in his tradition and retiring out here as well. And uh, so what happened when I got out here was that I joined the Chamber of Commerce here because I've always, in, in Iowa, I was very actively involved in the state business organization and was chair of it at one time and involved to a certain extent in state politics for lobbying as well as, you know, on behalf of business organizations and business interests. So uh, had a lot of connection with that. And, and so when I joined Donna, you know, started interviewing me and asking me about myself. She said, done, you're the Legislative Alliance chair. <laughs> <laughs> for the chamber, you know, because she's trying to build up the the uh, the organization, and, and Donna, you know, was great on membership, but she would be the first to tell you that she just didn't understand the advocacy side right. of things. So she she really pulled me in big time, and then, as I think you probably know, I then got involved in issues related to the. Uh, uh, vacation rental fee. Yep. 
and uh, interacted with the Vacation Rental Council on this and kind of followed that through. And, and in the course of it, <clears throat> I got to meet Kara from Visit Us's Park, who, uh, she's quite a dynamo, she really is, she's an amazing lady. Anyway, she, uh, she tapped me to uh, be the contract manager for this task force uh, to consider an increase in the lodging tax uh, and uh, dedication of funds to uh, workforce housing and childcare. And that was, of course, a result of House Bill 221117 that passed this year that gives uh, local marketing districts as well as county uh, marketing districts and counties generally the ability to devote some of their lodging tax revenue to workforce housing and childcare. And that ties into the Tabor Act, right? Well, it, it does in the sense that unlike the vacation rental fee that was justified as a uh, impact fee, this is clearly going to be a tax. Okay. It, and so it will definitely be subject to Tabor. And so we'll have to get it approved by the electorate for it to move forward. So tell us a little bit about it. How, is, how will it possibly help those of us here in Estes Park who, you know, maybe don't own um, vacation rental homes or anything like that? Right. How could this benefit our community in, in, the, in the near future? So, you know, we've noted for 50 years that there's been a housing problem in Estes Park, an availability and affordability issue. And the problem has, and, and in fact, if you go back to some of the housing studies and, the, and then the strategic plan developed by the town, you know, it's clear this has always been out there and we've been trying to deal with it. So there was a study back, I think it was 2016, a housing study, that declared that we were short somewhere between 1,400 and 1,700 housing units and that uh, as, and particularly affordable housing units for workforce. Uh, and that was one of a series of studies that goes back all the way to the 90s. <laughs> There's been a study and, and uh, what's happened is in the last about three years, the housing starts and the, you know, even multifamily housing starts hasn't kept up with the demand like it had in the past. And the housing authority has a very interesting table that shows this, that shows based on the, uh, uh, you know, the number of housing permits issued and and a series of studies. So I, I should get that to you because okay. it's, it's a really interesting piece of this. So I think the community has, has determined, and I believe on a pretty consensus basis, that we've got a major, major, particularly housing problem and to a certain extent a childcare problem as well. Absolutely. And that one of the main barriers to getting anything done is, is the money side. That, right. You know, we've got this the greatest, latest uh, study, or what was it, a recommendation I think from the Housing Authority had a list of 11 recommendations that were then shared with the county and, and the town. And a number of those things have been accomplished, but they were all the things that didn't really take much money. Right. <laughs> things like the uh, 
density, le yeah, releasing the density well. restrictions and the height restrictions and, and even the accessory dwelling units. Those, those were all positive things to help with the issue, but didn't cost a dime. <laughs> and, and so they've been struggling with how to figure out how to finance this. And so it, it com comes back to, you know, they, they did reserve some money, the town did from the general fund. They have the vacation rental fee as a potential source of funding. But none of that seems like it's enough right. to achieve the goal. And, and so the task force, part of what their mission is, is to determine, you know, what's a reasonable number of revenue gain that we would gain from a lodging tax increase? And how could we justify to the voter that we would use it properly in that in that way to really do what's necessary to deal with workforce housing. And, and so where is it at now? So, so the task force was appointed. We've had two meetings. We're meeting every Wednesday from noon to two o'clock. And these are open to the public. And they're open to the public. All you have to do is register on the Visit West, uh, Essence Park website. And you can also see recordings of the prior ones. So we're having scheduled to have meetings weekly at Wednesday, every Wednesday through June 22nd or 3rd that week and then make final recommendations to the town and to the county and to the Visit Essence Park Board on what the community thinks should happen based on this committee. Right. Now obviously they're the ultimate decision makers but you know we're doing the best to to really get as much input from the community as possible because it's one of these unique things that I think has appeal across political yeah. lines and that uh, everyone's interested in. So. All right, well, thanks so much for coming out and, and okay. for kind of breaking it down for us. All right. um, is there anything else you'd like to touch on that we haven't? Well, I would encourage people to really go to the Visit Us Park website. Okay. If they want to submit comments to the task force, they can do so written. Uh, even the, ta the staff of Visit Us Park will do one-on-one -on -one interviews with people that they'd like. But probably most importantly, try to watch these videos of these meetings because we are really coming up. There's a whole lot of information we're sharing, and particularly at the next one. Okay, and when is that specific? That'll be this. That'll be tomorrow. Tomorrow, okay. Uh, noon to two o'clock. All right. Okay. I think that'll be amongst the most interesting of all of them. So. <laughs> and why is that? Well, because we're trying to quantify this to come up with a number, and 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 you can't just come up with a number out of the blue. You've got to figure out how do you justify this to the right. public. Why? You know, the one thing we keep hearing about this initiative as well as other initiatives is the problem is it seems like there's never a plan right it's just that oh a grab for money without a plan and that's not something we can justify to the voters yeah well i think right now we're definitely in a, a unique situation at least from where we have been in the past where it is so much within that community yes. consciousness it and, is and you know we're seeing such impacts every week, whether it's, you know, postings on social media or, you know, losing of prominent members of the community because there's right. just no other place for them to be in town. Right. Um, I think if we come up with a good plan that, 
that this should be able to. Yeah. We, we, I, I think now more than ever we should be able to get something like this. Yeah, I would think so. If 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 not now, when you know really, right. <laughs> it seems like the momentum's with us, and it it looks to me like to give you an idea. Well, you may know this, but the, for every one percent of lodging tax, that should raise about a million and a half dollars. Right. Uh, and you know if you compare us to other places. There's been a whole lot of things going on in the lodging tax and short-term rental field in the last five years yeah. in the mountains, particularly the last two or three years. And so part of what we're going to be dealing with in the next meeting is giving that history, too, because I don't think people know it generally. But a bunch of communities have increased lodging taxes and or short-term rental fees to fund workforce housing. Right. Now, some of them have done it for more traditional reasons, too, you know, marketing, maybe civic improvements of sorts, but uh, increasingly they're going towards workforce housing and child care. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the ski resort towns are, are yeah. now finding like they need to come up with some workforce housing. Oh, they're, you know, realistically, they're in worse shape than we are. Really, I mean, in terms of the demographics, at least, I don't, you know, I think they may have more resources than this as part of this, but, you know, because they, uh, I'd be interested in hearing the, you know, kind of guesstimates of attendance by month in various areas to get a sense, you know, my, my sense is Vail and Breckenridge and, you know, Copper Mountain and, you know, Aspen and those areas are just swamped compared to even us. Yeah, I mean, and even with our numbers as they are recently, you know, yeah. I'm sure that their numbers are also increasing. Yeah, and, and that's such high dollar stuff, too. Because, yeah. you know, we're kind of a, we're not high dollar the same way. Here. No, we're, we're, we're kind of a holdout in that. Yeah. Like, we are the one place. We're the family place. Resort. Right, and we're a family friendly place. Right. Which is, it's a really different field in the ski resorts. Yeah. Well, there seems to be a social shift where people are really, really kind of re-embracing the National Park Service. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we, we're lucky that we have Rocky here. So. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. thanks so much for uh, sure. breaking this down for us and taking the time out of your day. Yeah. All right, folks. Well, you can find out more about this task force and the meetings that are happening, including the one tomorrow, which... Uh, Bill suggests we go check out um, on the Visit Estes Park website. I will be sure to put a link into the show notes there. And uh, also a link to the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. Okay, well, that's it for today. Um, what do I have coming up? Oh, I'm going to be talking with John Meissner, who, you know, I talk with him about a lot of local politics. He runs for pretty much every office, expecting to lose. I mean, his numbers are jumping up more and more now that he's coming on the podcast regularly. But um, he actually has a bit of an epidemiologist and has worked with uh, contagious disease for, you know, his whole career. He's actually a, a medical doctor. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the new monkeypox that's going around. There's two cases confirmed as of today in Colorado. Two cases. Now, they they are linked in that uh, there was contact between the two cases. And uh, one of them had traveled from, I want to say it was Chicago, um, where they had been exposed. But it's here. It's here in Colorado. 
and we're going to have a, a discussion about what that might mean for us here in Colorado and Estes Park. So that should be an interesting interview. Um, yeah, and then tomorrow I'll be covering the letter more. I had an interview with the uh, the attorney who put together the letter um, about the school board um, Colorado open records violation. So she's going to break down um, what that letter says and just kind of go into like the nuts and bolts of the allegations. Uh, since I'm just a lay person, I don't, I'm not a lawyer. So I, I figured it'd be better to have the person who wrote the thing come on and explain it. So they're going to be coming on that should hit the local newspapers and, and local media. Of course, I covered it last week, but, uh, they're, they're sending one out, uh, sent the letter out signed and whatnot, uh, this week. And then just in general news alone, um, I found out that next month I'm going to be on the, uh, Senate floor returning to Washington, DC, where I will be testifying on the Senate floor, uh, in front of the, in front of Congress, uh, for the, the January 6th insurrection investigation. Um, just going to be uh, kind of giving historical background to the Oath Keepers and, and other groups like the Oath Keepers. Um, but that should be interesting. And I, I, my attorneys are telling me that uh, it's going to be prob- most likely on primetime news coverage. So I don't know if it's C-SPAN. I think it sounded from what they were saying it'd be more like NBC or CBS or something like that, like an actual uh, you know news channel, not just politics like... Uh, c-span so uh yeah i'll have that up and make sure that you guys know where to tune in to catch it and uh, i'm sure i'll be uh, podcasting about the experience of going back to washington dc again and this time on the senate floor i'm sure that's going to be uh quite the life experience to draw on in future writings and podcasts and stuff so anyway that's the show for today i'll talk with you again soon again you're listening to the colorado switchblade and as always i'm your host jason van tatenove I'll talk to you all again real soon. Stay dry out there, Colorado.